Good morning. My name is Kevin Riggs. Uh, I pastor Franklin Community Church, and um, got several of my uh, members here, and I appreciate that so much. Uh, Big John is here. Big John, raise your hand. You can hear me there. <laughs> Big John raised, uh, laid the brick on this building some 50 plus years ago. <laughs> And um, he was one of the first African-Americans in Williamson County to join the Marines. So, uh, everybody needs to know Big John. Now, you may be thinking, Kevin, what are you doing here? And you're not alone, because I'm wondering that myself. I was asked just to come and share really why our church does what we do. Our church is very active in the community. We're kind of an activist church, and I'm an activist guy, and so so that's what they wanted me to share on. But I want to tell you, I do have a little bit of Church of Christ in me. Um, I went to kindergarten at West End Church of Christ. My dad was a longtime professor at what was then uh, Free Will Baptist Bible College, and a lot of us... uh, professor kids went to kindergarten there, but I got kicked out. Um, <laughs> not really. I, I, I made it half a semester. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I finished my doctorate degree, but I never finished kindergarten. I don't know how that works. <laughs> and then I went to uh, vacation Bible school a few summers at Bellevue Church of Christ. And my brother graduated from David Liscomb. So, you know, I got a little bit of Church of Christ uh, in me. But this morning, I do just want to share with you, uh, this is kind of my, my story, and uh, I call it the wrong horse. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4, eventually we'll get there. But before we begin, let, let me pray. Our Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be here today at this um, really, really historical, significant church in the city of Franklin. I thank you for... Um, the life of this church and the impact that it has had in the downtown area and then all across the county. Lord, that's not lost on me, the significance of this church and this building. And Lord, I thank you for the friendships that I've had with with, uh, several of the former pastors over the years. And I thank you for the friends uh, who I have who are part of this church. Lord, your kingdom is a whole lot bigger um, than the walls of any one church, and we thank you for that. But I pray now as we look into your word that first and foremost what I say will be your words and not my own. Um, And I pray uh, that through it all you will be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The wrong horse. The story is told of two Kentucky um, ranchers who raised horses and who who raised thoroughbreds, really, and would, ra- and would race them. And, and over time, these two guys developed this fierce rivalry with one another. They both claimed to, ra- to, to raise the best racehorses in the country, and um, they both claimed that their horses were superior to the other man's horses. And at first, and for a very long time, this competition between the two of them was fun, and it was good-natured. But over time, it turned into mean-spiritedness and jealousy, And so the ranchers decided that they would settle their rivalry once and for all with a race that would end all races. 
Each rancher would get his, his best horse and hire his best jockey. And the winner of the race would win the other person's entire ranch, including the horses, thus putting the loser completely out of the horse breeding business. So the whole town turned out on the day of the race. The horses were beautiful and powerful. The riders were experienced and professionals. The weather was perfect. The race would begin in the heart of downtown and go out into the countryside to a predetermined place and then circle back to the town square for the finish line. The gun fired and the race was on. The crowd cheered as the horses sprinted out of sight, neck and neck. At the turning point, the horses were still even. And as they got closer back to the downtown area, the closer they got, the louder the the crowd screamed. And as they came into town, there was one last jump that the horses had to make over a creek. And when the horses jumped, they were side by side. And when they jumped over the creek, the horses bumped each other, causing both jockeys to fall off their saddles and splash into the water. One rider was quicker than the other in getting back on the horse. And as a result, he won the race. The crowd was excited for what they had just witnessed. It was the greatest racehorse anyone had ever seen. And as the winning jockey was celebrating his victory, still on the back of the horse, the rancher who hired him came up to him shouting profanities and was greatly enraged. Confused, the jockey asked, what's wrong? I won the race, didn't I? And the rancher responded, yes, you won the race but you got on the wrong horse. (laughs) Now I can relate to that story. I started preaching when I was 15 years old. I'll be 57 in November, so you can do the math. I'm a fourth generation ordained minister in my denomination. I I started pastoring in August of 1989 and I was 23 years old at the time so that means this August I will celebrate 33 years as a pastor 30 of those years have been in Franklin Tennessee and I've seen God do some incredible things over that time I've experienced my share of miracles I have baptized and married and buried scores of people but I've also experienced my share of heartaches failures and criticisms but through it all I pray that I have been faithful and obedient to God's calling in my life but about 20 years ago I heard God say Kevin you've run a good race but you've been riding the wrong horse now I clearly remember that day I can remember it as if it were yesterday, the day that God said that to me. It was a Monday, and Mondays are never good days for pastors. (laughs) But it was a Monday after an exceptionally good Sunday. The church I was pastoring was a large church, and we had a, a, a wonderful service the day before, but I wasn't happy. There was an empty feeling in my soul. Something just wasn't right. Something was missing. I was pastoring a large church in Arkansas at the time. 
And this church was highly influential in my denomination. In fact, the previous two pastors before me left that church to take denominational positions. And so that's the track that it seemed like God had me on. And so from the outside looking in, I had arrived. I had reached the pinnacle of my pastoral career. But I knew there had to be more to ministry than what I was experiencing. And so in my church office, I cried out to God. I said, Lord, I don't get it. I know things are going well, but I don't see it. I know I should be rejoicing, but instead I feel empty. The truth is, this is a good church with good people. It was a good church with good people before I came, and if I were to leave, it would still be a good church with good people. In fact, God, I said, if the people in this church didn't even go to church, they would still be good people. But God, I don't see it. Where's the life change? Where are the miracles that I see in the book of Acts? And then I specifically said this. I said, God, where are the prostitutes and the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the homeless and the prisoners and the poor? Where are the oppressed and the possessed? Why are they not here on Sunday mornings? Why can't the gospel I preach reach them? There's got to be more to pastoring a church than what I am experiencing. It's at that moment the story of the two ranchers and the horse race came back to my mind. I'd read that illustration years ago in a sermon illustration book. So when you get a new pastor, don't think they're all that smart and clever. They got the same illustration books I've got. (laughs) And it was while I was replaying that story in my mind that I heard God say, Kevin, you've run a good race, but you've been riding the wrong horse. And so in my office, I'd ask, I asked, God, what does that mean? I mean, I started recounting my seminary education and all the church growth books I had read and all the church growth conferences that I had attended. I started replaying the goals that I had for myself. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I was doing the best that I could do with what I had been given. And then I thought to myself, well, how can I, a student of God's Word, and I want you to know before we go any farther that I still believe the Bible to be the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And so I thought, how can I, a student of God's Word and a student of church growth, be on the wrong horse? And as I contemplated these things, I heard God say simply, study the kingdom of God. And so that's what I did. I started reading the Gospels. And every time the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, that's Matthew's designation, every time those phrases occurred in the Bible, I underlined it. And to my surprise, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God a lot. In fact, he talked about God's kingdom more than he talked about anything else. And how did I miss that? I grew up in church. 
In Mark's gospel, the first gospel written after Jesus is the first gospel written after Jesus was baptized, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. And Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says that he went across Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The King James Version reads this way in that verse. It says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The Greek word translated good news, or the Greek word translated gospel, is where we get our word evangelism from. And so Mark 1.14 is the very first time in the New Testament that the gospel is mentioned, and it's associated with the kingdom of God. So the obvious question is, what is the gospel? What is the good news? What is evangelism? And Jesus tells us in the next verse, or the Bible tells us, and, and so in the next verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near, or it's at hand, or it has arrived. Repent and believe the good news, or repent and believe the gospel, or repent and believe evangelism. Thus, and I want you to get this, this is the key to what I'm saying. According to Jesus, the good news of the gospel, what we are to be proclaiming as his disciples, is that through faith in Jesus Christ, God's kingdom breaks into our reality right now in the present, and that changes everything. You see, folks, following Jesus is not about going to heaven when you die. Following Jesus is about bringing heaven to earth while you are alive. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he taught us to pray by praying these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth right now. In the present, in Franklin, in 2022, on earth as it is in heaven. You know, some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. (laughs) Don't be one of those Christians. And so Jesus' ministry began with him proclaiming the present reality of God's kingdom. Then everything he did, his miracles and his teachings and his healings and his resurrection, everything he did was about what life looks like inside God's kingdom. Jesus was saying, follow me and I will show you an alternative way of living life right now in the present. Follow me and I will teach you what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. The ethics of this new kingdom, this new way of living life, are seen in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And let me summarize it very quickly. Among other things, this alternative life, this kingdom of God, this what Dr. King called the beloved community, is where the poor are exalted over the rich, the brokenhearted are comforted, the meek are more powerful than those who exercise power over others, justice is more satisfying than the desire to get even, the pure in heart is greater than wealth, Peacemakers are the true children of God, and being persecuted for standing up for justice is the single greatest thing that can happen to a person. And that's just the Beatitudes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus further teaches that in this alternative society, 
Anger is the same as murder. Lust is the same as adultery. Breaking your promise is the same as lying. And restorative justice is superior to punitive justice. And then he continues by stating that citizens in God's kingdom love their enemies, give generously to the needy, pray in private, fast in private. They don't worry about what they will wear or what they will eat. And they don't judge others. And they continually seek after God. Living life by this kingdom ethic, living this alternative lifestyle, Jesus concludes, is like building your house on a rock instead of building it on the sand. And the house that the wise man builds, this house on a rock, is a house that he lives in on this earth while he is alive. But life in God's kingdom is more than a personal ethic. Ultimately, life in the kingdom is about the community, the beloved community. It's about how you treat your neighbor. It's about how you treat the immigrant, how you treat the poor, how you treat the widow, how you treat the orphan, and how you treat all those who are on the outside of our culture looking in. That's what life looks like in the community. It's about how you treat people on the outside of church not how you treat them on the inside. You see, God's kingdom does not start and end inside the walls of a church on Sunday morning. God's kingdom is what takes place Monday through Saturday. At our church, we tell people, we are a ministry that does church on Sunday. Sunday is not the primary focus. Now, that's just us. It was this acknowledgement that had the most impact on my life. And so as I continued to study and meditate on the kingdom of God, two stories from the life of Jesus started to shape my ministry and my church philosophy. One was the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to refer to this parable, but we don't have time to look at it in detail. If you want to hear that, you got to ask me back. (laughs) The other story... The one I want us to look at is when Jesus returned to his hometown synagogue and preached his first recorded sermon as a rabbi. That story is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. But I want us to look at verses 18 and 19. So Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. In this passage, Jesus returns to his hometown synagogue. Somehow or another, he had left. He had left a carpenter's son. He came back a rabbi. So he went through all of that process. And so when he comes to his hometown synagogue on that following Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. And as a visiting rabbi, they ask him to preach the message that day. And so he gets up. He's handed the scroll. It's turned to the prophet Isaiah. And everyone in the congregation, these verses that Jesus was going to read, everyone in the congregation would have known these verses by heart. They all would have. These were everyone's favorite verses. This is like John 3.16 to the the Jewish people. This passage in Isaiah. They would all know it by heart. And And so when they saw this is what he was going to be preaching from, if this young rabbi could not preach from this passage, they would have thought he ain't been called to preach. So the passage from Isaiah gives the job description of the Messiah. So here's what Jesus reads, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so very quickly, Jesus' mission, his job description involved four things. This is what he came to do according to Luke chapter 4. First, his job description first was to bring hope for a better, more secure life in the present. He said, I've come, I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor. Listen to me, folks. If the gospel is not good news to the poor, it's not good news for anybody. And just to make it clear, the word poor here is literally poor. It refers to poverty. It's not poor in spirit here. It is poor. It is dirt poor. But furthermore, it refers to people who are kept poor by an oppressive and corrupt economic system. And Jesus said, I have come to tell the poor there's a better life coming. You see, liberation from oppression is what Jesus had in mind when he said that. Second of all, Jesus' mission involved restorative justice for the incarcerated. He said, I've come to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. Third, it involved obtainable, affordable health care. Oh, where are you going? Hang with me. And that includes both physical and mental illness. Recovery of sight for the blind, that's physical illness, and to release the oppressed, that is mental illness. And fourth, Jesus' mission involved complete redemption and reconciliation. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this is obvious, a reference to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. A time when all debts were cleared. Property was returned to the original owners. Everyone was equal and everything was made right. The year of Jubilee, this reset button, the year of Jubilee, though commanded by God, was never even attempted or tried by God's people anywhere. We now understand the year of Jubilee to refer to the time when Christ returns and sets up a new heaven and a new earth. And so Jesus came announcing God's kingdom. In Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived, but it has not yet reached completion. When Jesus returns, God's kingdom will be fulfilled. Thus, right now, on May 22nd, 2022, right now, we live in the now and not yet of God's kingdom. The now of the kingdom was inaugurated with Jesus' incarnation. The now of the kingdom begins when you place your faith in Jesus and continue the ministry that he started. The not yet of the kingdom will be culminated when Jesus returns in all power and all glory. But right now, in the now, the church is the body of Christ. And that means that we are Jesus incarnate in the world. That also means that our mission is to be the same as Jesus' mission. We are his disciples. We are his apprentices. We are called to carry on the work that he started. And so Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 are our marching orders. Luke chapter 4, verses 8 and 19 tell us what we are to be doing as we live in the now of the now and not yet of the kingdom. This is what we are to be doing right now as we wait for the not yet when Christ returns. And so right now, in the present, 
We proclaim the gospel to the poor by proclaiming there is hope for a brighter future, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. We also proclaim the gospel to the poor by making our private faith public, by being the conscience of the community. And one way we do this is by pushing back against homelessness. We do have homeless people in Franklin and the wealthiest county in the state, one of the wealthiest counties in the country. That just should not be. It is the fault of God's people to see anyone without a home in Franklin, Tennessee. And so we proclaim, the, we proclaim the gospel to the poor by pushing back against homelessness, by fighting for affordable housing, by demanding that the city and the landlords follow fair housing regulations. We push back on this and proclaim freedom. Um, we proclaim the gospel to the poor by uh, fighting um, for livable wages, pushing back against food insecurity and against food deserts and fighting for equality in our education. That is why I do what I do. Proclaiming God's kingdom arrives through Jesus also means that we stand up for justice in all aspects of society, but especially the criminal justice system. And so this includes, but it is not limited to, prison reform, destroying the cash bail system, getting rid of mandatory minimums and truth and sentencing laws, and overturning the death penalty. This is how we preach the gospel. Prison reform starts by implementing restorative justice practices over just punitive justice practices. This is why my church does what we do. The gospel of the kingdom also includes health care issues, both physical health care and mental health care. Jesus said his mission and our mission included recovery of sight for the blind, physical illness, and to release the oppressed, mental illness. We are still in the middle of a COVID pandemic, but a greater pandemic that we refuse to deal with as a society is mental illness. And this just doesn't make sense. In the early days of the United States, churches saw the correlation between the gospel and healthcare and started hospitals all across the country. Now it seems if a church or a pastor speaks in favor of affordable health care or in favor, favor of health care that includes mental illness and treatment for addictions, well, that church or that pastor is considered a liberal. And it's like, what? I still believe the Bible is the infallible, inspired, inherent word of God. What has happened to us? God help us make our priorities his priorities. And so we proclaim these things, hope, justice, health care, bringing the reality of God's kingdom into the present while we wait for God's kingdom to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, guess what? There will be no more poverty. When Jesus returns, there will be no more prisons, no more homelessness, no more injustices, no more sickness, no more addictions, no more suicides. And may I add, when Jesus returns, there will be no more abortions. We wait for that day. But while we wait, we preach good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, releasing the oppressed. That's the now of the kingdom. The not yet is proclaiming the year of Jubilee. But how do we do those things? 
How do we carry out our mission of being Jesus incarnate in the world? How do we proclaim the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news? How do we live in detention of the now and the not yet of God's kingdom? Annette, I love you. Thank you. All right. Now I'm, now I'm an African-American preacher. <laughs> Everybody needs an Annette in their life. But just one. No more. Just one. So how do we do this? What should our ministries look like in church? Well, Jesus answers that question in that parable, the sheep and the goats, that I don't have time to get into. But here's what I want you to do. Sometime today, read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And as you read, ask yourself, how does what Jesus say we should be doing align with the programs and the activities in our churches? You'll be shocked. So, I spent the first half of my ministry on the wrong horse. It was the horse I trained on and I learned all about. It, I was comfortable on this horse. It was a good horse. It was a powerful horse. It was a fast horse. And I rode this horse a long way. And I experienced a lot of success on this horse. But it was the wrong horse. This horse's name was Church Growth. This horse taught secular business and marketing principles. It taught that in order to grow a church, you had to identify your target audience, and then you had to do the right things in order to attract that target audience. But nowhere in all the conferences I attended and in all the books I read, nowhere was the target audience the poor and the homeless, the immigrant and the sick and the prisoner. No church growth expert that I know of explained to me five easy steps to grow your church from 100 to 1,000 through homeless shelters and group homes and ministering to condemned men on death row. That book doesn't exist. Instead, this horse taught the importance of bigger buildings and bigger budgets and better programs and great music. But as good as this horse was, it was the wrong horse. The right horse is proclaiming that through faith in Jesus Christ, God's kingdom becomes a present reality, and that changes everything. The right horse is seeing your church as an outpost of God's kingdom in a foreign land, bringing the reality of God's kingdom into existence while you wait for Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to return and set up that kingdom in all its beauty. The right horse is seeing your church's ministry to be preaching good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed while proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Now, before you say amen to all this, remember what happened to Jesus. After he preached his sermon, his very first sermon, to people who loved him, these are people who he grew up with. After he preached that sermon, the people wanted to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. See Luke chapter 4, verse 29. Maybe some of you feel like doing that to me right now. I don't know. But regardless of the consequences, I am convinced the right horse is structuring your church's programs around feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, housing the homeless, caring for the immigrant, and visiting the sick, and visiting those in prison. Why am, I so, why am I so confident of this? 
Well, right after Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible tells us that he spent 40 days with his followers before he ascended into heaven. Now, you would think that during those 40 days, what Jesus would do would be remind his followers the most important thing, right? Does that make sense? You got 40 days, you've just resurrected, you're going to be ascended, you got some more time, your disciples got all kinds of questions, you got 40 days, you're going to tell them what's the most single most important thing. Luke chapter 1, verse, or Acts chapter 1, verse 3. I'll ask the worship team to make their way up front. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke records these words. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He didn't talk about anything else. He talked about the kingdom of God. So people of 4th Avenue Church of Christ, I leave you with only one question. Are you on the right horse? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Speak to our hearts and challenge us. In Jesus' name.